0: RoboHub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hello and welcome to the RoboHub Podcast. Today we're talking to a researcher who is trying to use robotics to help children with cerebral palsy. Cerebral palsy is a group of lifelong movement disorders that appear in early childhood. The signs and symptoms are different for different people, um, but they can include poor coordination, stiff muscles, weak muscles and tremors. Children diagnosed with this condition usually have to have physiotherapy to learn how to walk. Ayanna Howard, professor at the Georgia Institute of Technology, wants to help these children by using robots and tablet technology to gamify paediatric therapy and make it more fun. The idea being that if therapy is fun and engaging, children are more likely to do it, and thus they're more likely to see the long-term benefits of therapy. Our interviewer, Audro, spoke to Professor Howard about her work, how she gamifies therapy, how a small humanoid robot is used to coach children, and how they work with pediatricians.
1: Hi, welcome to Robots Podcast. Hi. Would you introduce yourself?
2: Um, I'm Ayanna Howard, Professor of Electrical Engineering. I do robotics at the Georgia Institute of Technology.
1: Would you tell me about your research interests?
2: Um, I am focused on pediatric robotics. And so what does that mean is I look at how do you do in-home rehabilitation for children, uh, primarily with motor disabilities.
1: Mm-hmm. And what motivates this?
2: Um, so I, when I started Georgia Tech, I was running um, robotic programming camps for children. Um, Just typical children, I would have a call out and I'd have kids come in. And one year I had a child actually with a visual impairment come in and the technology was not accessible to her. Uh, and I was like, okay, this is a problem. Bright kid, knew exactly what she wanted to do, was not accessible. So I started working on designing technologies for engaging kids with disabilities in robot programming camps. Um, and then one year, uh, a parent came who happened to be a clinician that said, hey, you know, have you ever thought about doing rehab? I was like, um, nope. Uh, so it started from then. Uh, and we just continue keep going and it expands every time.
1: Now, would you tell me about how you think of disability?
2: Um, so the way I think of it about a disability is um, so there's acquired and there's genetic. So acquired would be a classical disability, such as a child who uh, is born with cerebral palsy. Um, or uh, acquired? That's acquired. A genetic, genetic versus acquired. Acquired would be traumatic brain injury. Mm-hmm. Um, and genetic? Genetic is born would be with cerebral, palsy. cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, uh, where you're born with it. Um, but. There's the other aspect of acquired, which is um, a disability that comes from age. Mm -hmm. And so there's this concept that disability is really about um, a change in your normative function. And normative basically means if you have a certain quality of life that you're used to, and it changes because, say, you have arthritis in your fingers or in your elbows, or uh, it takes you a little bit longer to walk across the street, and you still want to maintain that quality. you basically have a change in your normative function that is classified as a disability.
1: Mm -hmm. Now tell me about disabled children.
2: Um, So children with disabilities, a a wide range. Um, Again, I focus on children with motor disabilities, but worldwide there's approximately 150 million children that are classified with a disability. Um, we think that there's more than that because some countries don't report it. Are Is that they, a,
1: that's, that's, oh, you said worldwide?
2: Worldwide, 150 million worldwide. In the United States, it's approximately a little bit over 7 million, approximately. I think it's like 6.4 to... Maybe
1: about 300 million people
2: um, in the US. In the United States, yeah. So um, if you look at the statistics, it's like 1 in 68 uh, children with autism, 1 in 323 um, children with cerebral palsy. Mm-hmm. Um, approximately half a million children with traumatic brain injury mm-hmm. um, are diagnosed every year. Um, so these are kind of the numbers that we're talking about. Down syndrome is a low incident rate. Uh, okay. Such Also, s- um, spinal cord injury is also a low incident rate, but that's typically uh, acquired because mm-hmm. of usually car accidents, sometimes sports.
1: Okay. Now, can you tell me a bit about cerebral palsy?
2: Yeah, so um, cerebral palsy is... Um, a uh, basically a disorder that causes a, a number of um, conditions. One is a movement disorder. So it could be something that's mild where you might have a uh, maybe a slight limp or you might have issues with fine motor control. Um, it could be on one side or the other. So it could be that um, you have an involved side, which would be like your Don dominant side, mm-hmm. or it could affect um, all of your limbs, so both lower as well as upper. Um, There's also some aspects that you might have some cognitive impairments, just depending on um, where the, in terms of the brain, where you have the um, occlusion or or where the signals aren't crossing over. Um, Typically, children with cerebral palsy, uh, there's even those that are nonverbal, just because of um, what part of the brain is affected. And so there is not one classical um, outcome in terms of the, Mm Movement characteristics or the cognitive characteristics, but it's a label.
1: I see. What is fundamentally happening to the person?
2: Um, so, uh, the, it, it's it's part of the brain. So, what happens is that uh, when a child is born, and there's various reasons why. Sometimes it's um, when you have a child who's born premature; their brain isn't fully developed, and so what they have is they'll have uh, parts of the brain that aren't fully connected. Uh. Um, wiring is missing. Wiring is missing. Uh, it could be that there's some cases where um, the, there's a complication during birth, and so yes. they don't get enough air. So, again, parts of the brain um, are, damaged, are damaged. And then damaged, right. the wiring. Correct.
1: Okay. Now, you're focusing on cerebral palsy and movement disorders, correct?
2: Correct. Correct.
1: Okay. So tell me a bit about the clinics that children with cerebral palsy or movement Um, disorders go into?
2: So um, a pediatric clinic, and and this is primarily children with disabilities, and so it's not just children with cerebral palsy. It's also children with autism, children with Down syndrome. Um, So a pediatric clinic is uh, traditionally has... um, a, a clinician who works with them on some aspect of the developmental milestones so it could be that uh, what do you mean
1: developmental milestones so
2: some of it's about speech so if i have a child who has difficulty in you want um, to make
1: sure they're growing up okay
2: correct Oh, the definition. Yeah. So developmental milestone (laughs) is, um, so every child has what they call milestones of growth. Mm -hmm. Um, They deal with everything from, you know, at what age should a child uh, learn how to crawl versus um, raise on two feet versus walk. Um, So there's some milestones of that. There's milestones in terms of uh, manipulation. At what age should a child be able to grab objects, um, like a coarse grass, Versus fine motor control, being able to handwrite. So there's kind of milestones, and typically, um, they're based on a norm or an average. Mm-hmm. Um, they're so when based, the average person, the average gets child. These correct, correct.
1: I see. Okay, so going back, these clinics they work to help these children meet their developmental milestones.
2: Correct. So the clinics help um, in terms of. Um, reaching their developmental milestones in a way that involves uh, repetition, Mm -hmm. usually. Um, It might involve alternative ways of teaching. Uh, As an example, if um, I am expecting a child to know how to walk at the age of, or starting to walk at, say, the age of one, and a child is not, um, I might try to do something alternative, like do things like uh, a mimicking kind of motion, or I might have the child and start moving their legs. And so there's different ways I might um, intervene because they themselves are not evolving uh, based on their natural condition, their natural environment, the natural learning cycle that a t- child would typically go through. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, okay, and so are these clinics, what, what are they like for the child?
2: Um, so one thing about the pediatric um, Um, clinic is that it's designed to be playful. It's designed to be fun. So one of the things about kids in general is that um, their brains, and and this is whether they have a disability or not, um, our brains when we're very young are designed to learn. They're designed to grab information from the environment and learn based on observation. That's kind of what we do as adults as well. Um, And so one of the ways that they do that is they create these clinics as like a playground. And so you have everything from bright colors, you have everything from large objects, you have things that move like balls and basketballs and small balls and large balls, you have a mobile car so that you can get them to move around. Um, and so pretty much it's kind of like a playground. And, and that's because you want to ensure that when you're
1: working with a child, they're engaged. Absolutely. Okay. Now, how do robots fit in?
2: Um, So one of the issues with um, basically therapy in general is um, that you have to do it. You have to do it over and over and over and over again. You have to repeat um and the more that you can repeat something the better you get which is like anything
1: like exercise like
2: exercise like learning math like computer science
1: or these kinds of things you have
2: to you have to continue doing you have to practice you have to practice and so um the clinician is not with the child 24 hours seven days a week And, and so typical um what happens is you're prescribed a, quote-unquote, exercise, like every child is, where you go to the clinic, maybe you go three times a week, which is actually... That's a lot. That's a lot, but that's no, when you no. have... In fact, in three times a week is if you have a good income and good insurance. Yeah. Um Typical is once a week. Um, that, probably. Yeah, and it really is correlated with insurance and, in and and that's in the u.s so if you go into other countries that's yes. even like zero yes um and so but and they, they've shown studies and they've had studies um in the clinical space that have shown that the more you practice the better you get period your brain just starts relearning and remapping and it tries to figure out if i have a damaged area um How does my wiring remap in order to relearn cause and effects and to do things that I wasn't uh, otherwise able to do? And so where does robotics fit in? So if I go into the home environment, um, what we find is a couple of things. There is um, a lack of compliance, so kids just don't do their exercises. Um, And some of it is because, like anything, kids are kids and if it's difficult you need some kind of
1: it's less fun than a lot of other things they could do oh
2: it's less fun and like everything else is probably better and funner Um, and then the other thing is we find is that in a lot of cases they've done surveys with parents a lot of parents are actually concerned that they don't know how to do it correctly like they they don't feel comfortable with whatever they're supposed to do the protocol
1: Would you give me an example of an exercise a kid should have to do?
2: Yeah, so an example of an exercise is um, something called uh, midline crossing or or movements across the midline. So imagine that I have a a disability and primarily my involved side is my left hand. So Mm -hmm. think of it as your non-dominant hand Mm -hmm. because I'm right-handed. And what you have to do is you would put um, an object on the other side, so I'm reaching across my midline, and I have to reach it and then pull it over. Mm-hmm. And then I have to do that again and pull it over. And I have to do it over and over and over and over again. Um, and the, kind of the challenge is, is that that block on the other side, you can't pull it in the same place because you're trying to relearn, and so you're going to move it around a little mm-hmm. bit uh, in terms of your starting position. You want to start at different places, but you want to keep doing that over and over again. Mm-hmm. Now add to that that you know, it's not fun, but it also might be slightly painful. So because it's like anything, exercise. You do it once, it's like, ah, but you do it for 20 minutes. And it doesn't become fun. It could be, it could be painful. Yes, and um, also
1: if you're slightly disabled or something limiting your motion. It's or hard. Your ability to reach these positions. Right, you may yes. not be
2: able to do it um, and things like that. And so uh, a lot of times you really do need parent involvement. Mm-hmm. Um, and the parents, they sometimes could do, but then there's also usually there's other kids in the house, there's mm-hmm. other responsibilities, there's a deer all of these things, and so uh, the compliance is just not there. I mean, they've done a bunch of studies
0: mm-hmm. uh,
2: about you know why kids aren't compliant, why adults aren't compliant, and there's various reasons. Frustration, boredom, okay. um, forgetfulness sometimes. I just yes. forgot. Um, so one of the things about robotics is that robots are well, one, they, they don't necessarily get tired. I mean, they have to charge, but they don't get tired. <laughs> yeah. um, they're also very repetitive. I yeah. mean, you can give them a plan and say, you know, here's my... Do
1: it till you break down.
2: Do, yeah, do it till you break down or until you're down to, you know, 10% battery yeah. charge and then go charge up. Um, they also, at least in, in my research, you can make them engaging so that it's no longer boring. It's a game. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can also determine if, if you're doing an exercise... Um, like the midline kind of thing, mm-hmm. if I see that you're in pain because you look at a child's face and you yeah. you, you know it's not that hard to... to
1: no, to, but you don't want them to be in pain. Then you, you don't want it. to.
2: So you might actually adjust it. So then you do something that's still, like, they have to do this for 20 minutes, but, you know, well, let's do something a little bit different mm. so it gets them, and then let's go back to it. And so you can have a robot do that and just be designed so that it can monitor and change so that you still get the 20 minutes a day yes but it's more fun and it's more engaging and um the fact also is is when kids play uh somehow they don't realize necessarily the pain that goes with yeah. it i mean it's just go like it. yes go it. it's go well it's just like like the difference between exercise and playing sports yeah definitely Kids can play sports, and you know what? You're exercising, and you're sweating, and at the end, you might be like, oh, my gosh, I hurt.
1: But it's better than running on a treadmill or something. Exactly. Yes. Okay. To summarize. You have a robot taking the place of a clinician or parent to direct children through their exercises that they should do to get better.
2: Correct. Well, to, to improve their physical outcomes.
1: Gotcha. And hopefully meet these developmental milestones.
2: Right. Get them closer to meeting them.
1: Got you. Now tell me a bit about the robot you use.
2: Um, so we use a humanoid robot. Um, currently, we use the the Darwin OP, which mm-hmm. is um, well, open source. It's an open source humanoid robot, correct? Uh-huh. Um, and it has
1: um, how tall are they? Is oh, like, it's forty five uh, centimeters, a foot and a half.
2: It's about. So this is me squatting, because <laughs> yeah. like, we always have it squat just because of stability. Um, yeah, of course. Yeah, about a foot and a half, maybe 16, 16 inches, roughly. About that, just to um, get an idea. Yeah, doesn't have to be exact. Yeah, so it's not a, it's not a huge robot. Little robot. Little robot. Up to your um, knee. <laughs> up to your knee. Uh, although with these kids, it's actually, up to their <laughs> it's 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 kind of um, yeah. up to an adult person. Up to an up to an adult's person knee, and and typically we work with kids um, around the ages of five to eleven ish. Mm-hmm. So. Um, if you think about the size of a child that's at that age, the, the robot is, it's, oh, okay. yeah. Um, Darwin is, is expressive enough, so it, we can, it has enough actuation in its...
1: You can make it do gestures. You can
2: make it do gestures. Um, it no, can, skill, no
1: facial muscles or anything.
2: No facial <laughs> muscles. That's my only issue. Um, but, you, yeah, no Does facial. it have little eyes? That it has eyes noted? that um, you can change the color. Um, oh, they're just but they're, nice, they're RGB LEDs. They're yeah, they're not LCD. They oh. just light up. So they're round, and yeah, you can make them red, or you can. I mean, Whatever you can color. right. Um, of course, it has head movements, but it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't nod, but it rotates. Gotcha. Um, so it, it has enough actuation to um, exhibit it can expressions be and gestures. Yes, yeah. exactly. Okay.
1: So, what kind of sensors are on this robot? That you use, particularly the cameras. Yeah, we use the cameras, and so that's probably the dominant thing you're using. Yeah.
2: So actually, though, we so again the evolution of the research. When we first started, and the Kinect did not exist, we used the cameras. Mm. Um, When the Kinect came out,
1: oh, it probably has good software, so you can identify pose.
2: So, so the so the only thing we primarily use the camera now for is really to look at the child's face. Ah,
1: detect emotion.
2: Detect emotions. Um, okay. But we also, depending on the system, we also use if they're working with a tablet, we use a tablet camera. Um, if they're working with the Connect, we so we use multiple ways. The camera on the robot is actually the less reliable only because... Um, so if you think about a scenario and I'm interacting with the robot, um, I'm turning away from the robot, I'm turning toward the robot, and so my right. point of view is, is going to be... Well, if I'm looking at your face, mm-hmm. I can't always see your face. Whereas if I'm interacting with a tablet You're or... You're
1: looking at it constantly.
2: There's, I don't, that's it. That's, so we, we that's ha- it.
1: We haven't spoken about the tablet. Can you tell me a bit about the tablet?
2: Okay, so the way so you that... We have
1: two different ways of doing this.
2: Right, and this is the gamification. So one of the... Um, problems with robotics still is manipulation, mm-hmm. manipulating things in the environment. Um, so when we first started this, the concept is, is in, in the clinical setting, uh, clinicians typically use physical objects mm-hmm. in order to play with the kids and have them interact. Um, and so how could we mimic that scenario of playing in the environment with physical objects? How do we imitate that? Because at the end of the day, what we want to do is... Movements. Mm-hmm. So how can we get a child to move without actually having physical objects? So we went with gamification. So mm-hmm. we gamify uh, both.
1: And uh, gamify means turn into a game. Turn into a
2: game. So we, t- we take um, typical movement things um, and turn into a game. So for um, the first thing, which is virtual reality, um, and this is typically with, and actually both systems work with kids who are, at different scales of um, whether they have high spasticity or they're mild. Um, in terms of virtual reality game, I move my arms, and what I'm doing is I'm popping bubbles, and I can have backgrounds, and I can wear a crown and do things. And so yeah. that's yeah. what we call it, super pop. So you're popping the game.
1: Super pop. Very so cool. That's called super
2: pop. Um, although you can... You can actually change the bubbles to, like, cars. And anyway, so you can change it.
1: So a camera's facing them, and they're looking at a TV or tablet or something?
2: So that one they're looking at, we usually plug a laptop into a TV, Uh and we put the Kinect right above it.
1: Gotcha. And so they're looking at themselves, and there are bubbles on the TV. And there are bubbles on the TV. And they reach up their hands and they're popping. to touch. Right. And you identify when they touch it, and then the bubble
2: pops. And the bubble pops, right. And we have music. We practice with music. So, like, we like have to play a song. Yeah. So that's exactly what it is. Um, for the tablet, what we have is things that are much more on the cause and effect. And so mm-hmm. with that one, uh, we have things like I have to shoot the, um, like,
1: like Space Invaders? Yes,
2: <laughs> Space Invaders or so Asteroids,
1: and, and you
2: have to shoot it. Um, and so that one, the requirement, and depending on the child and, and what their ability is, some of it is we ask them, you know, put your hands down and reach up and touch, reach up and touch, reach up and touch, up and, touch. and so they're getting the movements. Yeah. Um, if, they have, if they're have, if they unable to do that, um, we have other devices where uh, they only have to move in the XY plane, mm-hmm. and so they move around where they're still... Um, popping the, or killing the... I
1: Whatever they're human. doing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Destroying the aliens. Destroying
2: the aliens. Inking, we, we use... Inking. Inking. <laughs> Inking. <laughs> it's friendly. Yeah, we have one game where you actually ink the turtles, so...
1: Okay, very cool. Now, tell me a bit about how the robots are engaging for the children.
2: So, um, there's two ways that um, a human clinician interacts with a child um, when they're providing engagement factors. So one is uh, motivational feedback and the other is corrective feedback. Mm -hmm. So uh, motivational feedback is just reinforcing. You can do it. You you can do it. It's great. Keep trying. Whether they are doing it well or not, it's just to keep them motivated. Um, And the other one is corrective. So if I see that you're not doing it or I I know that you can reach further or Mm -hmm. I need you to increase the your movement speed or straighten your arm, I'll give corrective feedback. Mm -hmm. And so that's what a human clinician does. And so we do both of those types of feedbacks with the robotic system. Um, And so if it's just engagement, we basically try to mimic the emotional state of the child. And so Mm -hmm. if the child, for example, just one the robot should, of course, I just it won. It a Exactly. It's uh, so like robot, pump
1: his arm happily or something. Yes,
2: exactly. In fact, that's one of the movements. <laughs> yeah. um, if the um, child hasn't done well or lost the game or didn't do well, the robot should commiserate. Oh, man. <laughs> it, it was tough. To, it yeah. was, exactly. Um, so that's that whole motivational. Um, one of the aspects is that it should reflect the state of the child. Um, and then the corrective is providing guidance. I need you to move faster, um, straighter. we've actually simplified the language. Um, we don't give exact directions like we need you to raise your arm up and do an arc of ninety degrees. Um, it's actually very we, we call it um, this iterative fashion, so it's straighter or it's, it's very straighter, faster, slower, um, and very then we very simple, and so we converge to whatever limit that we want. Cool. Um, and so that's how we do the corrective feedback.
1: Tell me a bit about identifying the emotion or the state of the child.
2: Yeah, so um, at, at one level, there's, and I would say in emotions, there's kind of two states of emotions that we want to identify. So one is engaged and disengaged. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's basically engaged is I'm into the game, I'm, I'm there. Uh, disengaged is I'm usually as I'm bored. Um, because if they're disengaged, that means that we're not doing our job in terms of emotional interaction and encouragement. The other is identifying their actual emotional state, whether it's happiness, whether it's frustration um, or slash pain. We actually yeah. put those in the same category. I think um, it's bad. You want to move away from it. We want to that. move away from it. and And that's really so that the robot mimics the state of the child. So engaged, disengaged is... Uh-huh. I'm bored or I'm engaged. Yeah. And if I'm bored, we actually, that just basically means it's time activity. change activity. Whereas the emotional state is actually to figure out what should to the robot. To their limit,
1: but not further. Correct. I see. Do you use any, did you learn from psychology with this mirroring and this kind of
2: thing? Mirroring, so um, we do a lot of research on primarily uh, psychology and cognitive science. So we mm. read a lot of tons 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 of papers very um about this and so um yeah there's there's actually models like Eckerman, there's models of know, emotional stick yeah sti- yeah. yeah so yeah gotcha.
1: we- and so mirroring is the idea that you behave and kind of see things similarly to, lead to another person mm-hmm. and then you bond so this right is what so this would lead to engagement yes. hopefully yes yes very interesting and long term engagement yes now will you tell me a bit about the metrics you're um,
2: yeah. So the metrics we're collecting on, in terms of the child's movement profile, um, are a host of, of kinematic, kinematic, kinematic metrics. Um, so we're looking at movement time. We look at range of motion. We look at path length. We look at deviation from path. We look at um, mm-hmm. movement units. So these are all parameters that are associated with upper, upper body, upper arm movement. Um, there's a host that are on lower which we're just getting into um, but the upper body and so what happens is these metrics um, each of them are improved and they're correlated in different ways, uh, but all of them have some type of norm. So, for example, a, a movement unit is when I reach for something, there's actually, in, in theory, there's one acceleration, one deceleration stage mm-hmm. until you get th- So, basically, your arm moves very quickly, fast, about halfway through before you get to the object. It actually slows down.
1: Yep, so you, Which, you stop at the object.
2: And you stop at the object. So there's this acceleration, deceleration stage. Um, a child with a motor disability might have, yes, multiple ones. And so we want to extract that information out. Because that actually contributes to something called jerkiness, yeah. i.e., how. Shaky hands. Yes, and so these are some of the metrics that we, we extract um, for every child, and as they're interacting, um, we time it based on what the clinician wants in terms of you know how many um, I, how many units of values do I want. During a this game? scenario, so so if you think about a game, I'm I'm running this game for 20 minutes. Yeah, clinician doesn't actually want 20 minutes of data. They have
1: a certain amount of reps they want.
2: They want a certain repetitions, right? Um, and so what happens is the repetitions. I mean, so there's one at the beginning and there's one at the end, but the ones in the middle are um, typically.
1: Oh, at, you, you evaluate the beginning and end. To... Yeah, that's
2: always done. We d- evaluate the beginning and the end, but then during. Um, Typically, the cycle is is at the beginning, you have more repetitions because the child is well, the most, deep. yeah, and then at the end, and so at the end, you actually lower the number because yeah. the deviations is going to be there's going to be a drastic shift down, and yeah. then it's just going to be low um, and so and this has been through iterations with the clinician, so they they kind of know what that profile should look like, mm-hmm. and so we extract data and collect data based on that um, in this case. You know, the big data problem, more data, does not help the clinician necessarily.
0: Yeah,
2: uh, it's numbers. it's quality data. Yeah, and so, so that's they, they want to see to it
1: in its context, correct?
2: They want to see it in its context. They so want to see it, it with respect relative. to norm. Exactly. So we do that. Um, we have a way of establishing a baseline, um, basically uh, myself and how I improve over time, as well as myself with respect to an average of typical kids. Mm-hmm. So I know how far away from a baseline I am mm-hmm. as well as how I'm improving over um, a given session, over given days, over given weeks.
1: Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Now can you tell me a bit about the challenges of working with kids?
2: <laughs> kids don't listen. Well, that's <laughs> the biggest challenge. Uh, the biggest challenge is that um, kids are very creative in how they interpret play Mm -hmm. Um, and therefore and I don't I always say they don't listen uh, but they don't follow the rules that we as adults set for them Mm. Um, and so what does that mean it means that uh, if I as an example um, want you to use your involved side i.e. my case is the left hand um, a child is going to use it at first but then of course it's hard and so I might switch right in the middle of the game and so what does that do with my metrics and so I have to have ways of incorporating that into my algorithms because I cannot assume that it's going to that the data is um, assumptions on the data are wrong Uh, period
1: yes it would corrupt the data it would corrupt the
2: data and so we have to have automated ways to actually
1: Tell, tell if they're cheating
2: Tell if you're cheating and then take that data and, I mean, save it, but don't put it into the calculation. So if I'm looking at your progress and I assume that you're always using your left hand, then I'm going to look at that and your progress is not going to look correct because...
1: Yeah, it's like it suddenly got better because you started using the right
2: hand. Right, right. So how do I do that in an automated fashion mm-hmm. uh, without the clinician having to go and say, oh, something's wrong. And Let's... look at
1: every single moment of right. the that video. Right, that defeats
2: the purpose. Yeah. And so we have to do things to the algorithms makes it more challenging Mm -hmm. um, because we can't assume anything
1: gotcha and then so what about the various labels of people with cerebral palsy um so various functioning a various ability to do different movement tasks
2: yeah so um there's so much variation in in a child with CP so when I first got into this space Um, and this concept of movement disorder and a child with CP was, you know, I, in my mind, I was really thinking about um, a severe case, like a child who was in a wheelchair. Um, I didn't even think about the, and when I thought severe, I didn't think of high spasticity, which is like really severe, Mm -hmm. but that wasn't my concept. I I just didn't have that correlation. And um, what happens is when you've seen enough kids, uh, you realize that the label is basically for uh purposes of insurance probably but uh-huh. it really doesn't link to their abilities. Interesting. Um and
1: so it's unbelievably broad the it's label. It's
2: unbelievably broad. Um and in fact it's not even about the movement. Sometimes it's the cognitive. And oh. so if I have a child who might have a mild a mild movement disorder mm. but cognitively they're um underperforming mm-hmm. they're the representation of their movements might be different because of... Cognitive ability. Yes. which Interesting. Which means that even my therapy or, or how I interact with them is actually slightly different. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's the challenge is the large variation um, in the kids.
1: Mm-hmm. How do you deal with this, or what, what kind of ways have you found?
2: Yeah, so right now we, um, again, the only way we deal with it, and we're trying to think about other ways to do this, like having a cognitive test, for example. Ah, oh, interesting. Um, because we know that there's correlations, um, but the way that we typically deal with it is that um, our games adapt. Mm-hmm. They, so there's a profile that we can set. Which is like speed of like super bubble use super like speed of how the bubbles appear, yes. the locations where they appear, what Three size. Yes. Um, so we so that game can adapt yes. based on what the child is doing. And so if we have a, a quote unquote label, and we think that this is a case where they're mild, mm. and we have a norm of what the parameter should be for the game, if they're not performing, and we're like, wait, exactly, we'll make it easier. Make it slower. And so that's the only way we deal with it is that we just. So you
1: scale the difficulties.
2: We scale yeah. the difficulties uh, based on. But the only issue is that they have to play. So yes. one is that there is an initial assumption that the clinician makes about the parameters. Yep. The child has to play for Not us to realize that.
1: What the parameters are.
2: Right. That, is, that
1: was wrong. Not, it's just a guess. It's, it's,
2: it's, a, a, <laughs> it's a guess. So we start off with a and guess, an a initial question. condition, <laughs> yeah.
1: but we're able to, to move around that. Okay, can you tell me a bit about the challenge of different age groups?
2: Yeah, so um, we, well, okay, now we focus on, like, the age of 5 to 11. Um, Before we looked at, um, still 5, but we actually looked up to about age 17. Um, The difference is um, not necessarily in their movement profiles. Uh, Their difference is in their engagement factor. Mm -hmm. Um, So how you engage with a 5-year-old is much different than the way you engage with a 17-year-old, um, even if they, say, are cognitively the age of a, a child who's five. Um, so there's you can have a 17-year-old girl that um, they're 17 in terms of their, their age, but cognitively, they may be at the age of five. But they are not emotionally the age of five. Mm. They're emotionally the age of 17, so things that would be cute and cuddly to a five-year-old will not be cute and cuddly to a 17-year-old. Um, so those are uh, some challenges, which is why we typically don't um, engage kids who are older, like teenagers, mm. uh, who have... So we'll do typical teenagers just because we treat them more like adults. Yeah. Uh, but children um, are teenagers who... Um, have cerebral palsy, our system is not going to engage them. We know this. Mm. It's not going to engage them uh, just because it doesn't have the correct modalities for engagement, in terms of even the games. The games are, they're simple, they're simple. simple. And even though Mm movement-wise, it might be at the level that uh, they can function and interact with the game, um, the engagement is just, it's too simple. There's still a 17 or a 16-year-old, they don't want to pop bubbles.
1: Yeah. You know. Can you tell me a bit about long-term retention?
2: Yes. Um, so we, and we have to do much
1: better at this. And the and, importance th- of this as well.
2: Um, so one of the things is, and the, the whole, the kind of the holy grail of therapy is, um, as a human clinician, I work with a child. And what I'm trying to do is give them the skills so that when they go into the real world, they go to school, they go home, they can... Compete and continue at that level that we we're working at in the clinic. Um, and so that's retention. So if I am working with you and I've gotten you to move your arms straighter, I want you to remember that when you're in the home and I'm not there saying move your arm straighter. And so with robotics, we want the same thing. So if I have the robot playmate interacting with you and I have you, you know, straight line motion, we've um, moved some of the jerkiness in your movements. Um, and you're doing it because there's your robot that's helping you and telling you and assisting you, encouraging you, um, if I remove that robot, do you still retain that knowledge? Um, if you're retaining that knowledge, that's when you know that your brain is remapping then. Whereas if I'm constantly there, the robot is your feedback mechanism. It's uh, not yes. internal. It's external. We want to make it internal. Um, and so the retention is the indication that what you've learned is now... Um, an internal your structure has changed and shifted mm-hmm. so that now this becomes your norm versus what it was before that's important because um, at some point you're going to be in school and there's not going to be a robot playmate or a parent is going to be your teacher that's teaching you and your teacher's not a clinician um, and so how and now you have to sit there and you have to write something and okay, if you don't retain the knowledge of, you know, okay, let's remove the jerkiness, this is how I do it, mm-hmm. then your writing becomes ineligible. Mm-hmm. And so that's right.
1: Not legible.
2: Not legible. Ineligible. Not legible. <laughs> ineligible um to be considered. <laughs> not legible. Um, and so those are the reasons why you want the retaining of, of that knowledge.
1: Mm-hmm. And so what are, are you seeing retention with your system? Yeah,
2: so, um, and again, it's limited, and so we have to do these longer-term um, studies. And longer-term is, is we've been able to show that when you have the robot there, we can affect change, mm-hmm. and when we remove the robot, um, basically right after the child retains that knowledge without the robot doing this constant feedback, what we don't know yet, which is what we have to, and which we're about we to go to, time. Yes. is the time. So, you know, is it... An hour later that you forget or do you still retain it Um, and then the concept is and the things that we have to tease out because we don't know that answer is how often does the robot have to intercede to to eventually have it so that it becomes part of your norm Um, we don't know that and so we're looking at both a four-week study and an eight-week study to see you know is is that a long enough time to have you basically say, "Oh, I now know how to do this," yeah. correct?
1: Interesting. Yeah. So. So, what is the future direction of your work? Um, on
2: this? So, a robot in every child's home. <laughs> uh, honestly, that's 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 the ultimate goal.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, yeah, that's the ultimate goal. So, how do you do that? Uh, one is we need a platform we can just put into a every child's child with home. cerebral palsy. Every child with a movement disorder who's with going through disorder, right, who's yeah. going through this who who has the ability to um, have a clinician, because you have to go to the clinician to write it, right? um, and and have it operate in the home. Um, Kind of more of the global things that we want to do is we want the system to... So right now, we have, I would say, norm data on typical kids. Mm -hmm. There does not exist a database of norm data for a child with cerebral palsy. Um,
1: So you can create one.
2: You know, ideally, if we have a system that is in multiple kids' homes and we're collecting all this data, then, you know, and that would actually help with the next child and the next child and the next child. Um, And that's kind of like the holy grail that that I would like to see.
1: You don't just rely on one clinician's experience in diagnosing a kid. You look at all of the data. Correct. That would be very interesting. Okay. Uh, And then wrapping up, what advice do you have for a person beginning their research career?
2: Um, So I always say go with what you feel passionate about. Um, So one of the things about research is that there's no right answer, and the answer you thought was right is usually wrong. Um, And if you aren't passionate or interested in what you're doing, that can get frustrating. Um, and so and whatever it is it doesn't have to be healthcare. it has to just be something that you're like you know the reason I'm doing this is you know because I believe in it and so I'm willing to try things and be open-minded and you know have as they say it's only a failure if you give up so you know I have many many opportunities to learn as I say uh, but that only works if you really believe in what you're doing so choose something that you really enjoy and like so that's that's really my my primary advice
1: Thank you.
0: Sounds good. And that's the end of today's episode. But you can check out Robohub.org for lots more robot-related news, articles, videos and podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Coach with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics.